Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Friday, April 9th, and I am joined, by, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Absolute shambles. How about you? Oh, wow. Not what I was expecting. Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. It's Friday. We're almost to the weekend. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I predicted absolute shambles last Monday, and uh, here we are. All right. Is that sports related or is that no that's attack on Titan? Ah the okay. story is over <laughs> and I'm still coping, trying to figure out if I like the ending or not. Okay, okay. And and taking your time to formulate your thoughts, I'm guessing. Trying to ignore as much of like online toxicity as I can while also not trying to just totally write it off and close my mind to like any comment that suggests something I don't like, which is a fine line to walk because there can be like a ton of hate, but also some valid good points that are true. And you can't just say, oh, you've got to ignore the online hate and ignore everything. Um, But we're seeing like ending a story is such a fine art, even telling a story. So it was a way better ending than like game of thrones rise of the skywalker that sort of stuff way better story as well like throughout so if there's a couple holes in the ending things that don't quite make sense but you like the main goal end point maybe that should just be good enough and just block out the small stuff medium stuff kind of stuff yeah I'm, i'm interested to see how they're going to wrap up the first season of uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier because it is only a six-episode season, uh, and they're already halfway through with plenty to get to uh, in the story. It's it's never an easy thing to wrap up a show, and very few have done it in a way that satisfies fan bases. See, I feel like with a lot of TV shows where they get into trouble is they have this great, this one a little different, of course, but they have this great idea for a first and maybe second season and the pilot goes great the show's rolling and then it's just way more successful and it you only discontinue it and stop it there if you hate money at the time so you have to find a way to spin the creative wheels in the mud so to speak and figure out how to keep it moving and when you're in the moment trying to think about how to extend it, that's never going to be as good of an idea as before the show even started production and you had all the time in the world and you had this initial great idea. So I, I just, I, I don't know if you ever watched like Prison Break. Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, that's my favorite example because like the first season is so amazing and the second season is still pretty solid and you can tell then they go and they're like, oh, well, we can't just end this here, but it clearly wasn't part of their plans to keep going. So they just have to, how do we find more prisons to break out of? And uh, it just never quite reaches that excellence that they saw in the first season when they conceived of the whole show. So I guess with Falcon Winter Soldier, I mean, I don't, it's part of a universe. They're just constantly trying to extend. So they probably didn't have that same, like one amazing pilot pitch idea, but maybe the floor is higher just because they've been doing it for so long at such a consistent production level. Definitely. 
that's that's uh yeah, hundred percent. That's where it is because they have all of this great stuff to work with, but it's also the difficulty of adding in new storylines and making sure they fit with this overarching picture and also the vision where they're trying to go. Right. Cause they have, they've now used up all of the like well-known characters. And so they have to deal with the, they've moved on from that initial massive bit that they've worked with. And they're working towards this new future of heroes with a lot of people that common viewers aren't interested in and they have to create exciting storylines that also make sure they match with the roots of where they were coming from it's it's definitely an interesting project to see where it goes and i'm really excited loki is coming out in two weeks and that should be a good show um definitely a fun character true it's such a interesting crossroads between like a media empire and expansion at the same time as this like delving into a comic verse world that's probably i mean comic books have been popular for a long time but i don't know if they've ever had such mainstream popularity as these characters do now yeah it's yeah 100 percent true it's all of your research and development costs so to speak this has gone into these characters and it's your core business but it doesn't sell to the greater population and so you have to figure out entertaining ways to do that okay let's get to sports shall we this is a sports yeah we have an absolute buffet for everyone today uh we'll kick off the show with some hockey combat corner some nba baseball football both kinds uh a little bit of golf maybe the masters are underway this weekend very famous and historic tournament and then I have some thoughts about MTV's The Challenge that I'd like to bring up at the end of the podcast because while it may not necessarily be a sport, it is an intense physical competition uh, that I have enjoyed this season. And uh, I just have some thoughts I want to put out there. If anyone's interested, has watched it, and wants to chat about it, feel free to reach out to me after the show. But uh, yeah, lots to talk about. So we will get right into it and uh, kick the show off. With some hockey talk from the North Division, the Toronto Maple Leafs and Jack Campbell starts the season 10-0-0, tying the NHL record, breaking the Leafs record held previously by Felix the Cat Potman, uh, and couldn't happen to a greater guy. Like, just so awesome to see him celebrate. Marner's counting it out with his hands at the end of the game. Yeah. <laughs> so happy. And, and Campbell... Call, shouting out his LA Kings team and, and the development he had to go through in that organization, talking about the struggles that he went through and the long road it is to finally get here. And he just, it's so like heartwarming and genuinely uh, amazing that he has come this far and now is experiencing this much success. And um, you love it to happen to an awesome guy and also you love it as a Leafs fan that it's happening to our team right now (laughs) I think what I love most of all is he won a game Monday night he won a game Wednesday night we haven't seen him play that's not a back-to-back but the way Jack Campbell's season has gone it feels like a back-to-back so maybe the health questions are finally starting to simmer down if he can continue to play at that strength of schedule and we have a solid 
secondary option going into the playoffs because it's still very unclear what's going to happen come trade deadline. Yeah, the Leafs very quiet, um, and we're getting nearer and nearer every day. Uh, I think it's now. I think it's, it's what Monday. Is it? Monday is the trade deadline, and so they have very little time to move, especially with that week of uh, isolation. But yeah, it you got to get Freddie Anderson a shot when he comes back uh, because you don't just lose your job due to injury. Um, and Jack Campbell has shown that he can be the number one guy as of right now. And uh, so it's going to be an interesting debate when it comes back. But right now, just ride this kid as long as you can. Uh, going into Ottawa on Saturday and maybe a game where you might start Hutch just <laughs> because you give Jack that extra time off. But Ride him as long as you can because uh, there's only 16 games left in the season. And when he's performing like this, it's just keep widening that lead on the division. You're almost there. Yeah, that's the nice thing going into most of these games. I don't even care if it goes into overtime regulation anymore. As long as we, I feel as good as we can about picking up the extra point in extra time against any team that's not named Edmonton Oilers. <laughs> Although I guess we'll talk about that a little in a bit later in this segment, but pick up one point, pick up two points. It doesn't really matter at this point. It's just maintaining and stretching a lead. I, I guess 16 games, a lot can still happen, but feeling very comfortable at this point in the season relative to how the last month has gone really. And I think a lot of it has to do with Austin Matthews finding his scoring touch again, because that's, that was just a level of consistency and dependency we had before. When that went away, we really had struggles. Um, penalty kill struggles and power play drying up were another big part of that like struggle. And once the penalty kill got fixed, it got a bit closer. The power play is still not where we want it to be. But with Matthews going, your penalty kill basically bailing out your power play and making it a five on five game almost every night and this team just has the scoring depth and touch and is doing enough defensively to get those wins yeah you could see it with Matthews and you can see it with the power play they're close like Matthews has hit a million posts in the last three weeks uh and they're starting to go in now the wraparound one he scored uh against Calgary early probably shouldn't have gone in but that's what happens when you get goal scoring opportunities um and it's or sorry that was Montreal wasn't yeah yeah that's what happens when you get goal scoring opportunities and the power play is again I feel a little too stagnant uh they're gonna just keep trying different combinations see what works but uh at a certain point like the puck's gonna start going in the net for these guys because there's just way too much talent and they've had previous success that you know there's going to be a breakthrough. Uh, and I'd rather be experiencing power play tr troubles while we're winning <laughs> than while we're slumping. And so they still have plenty of time to figure it out before the playoffs. And I'm just wondering, how many points do you think they need in the last 16 games to wrap up first in the division? Because they right now are six points up on Edmonton, I believe it is, and, and with a game in hand. So I'm just wondering, what do you think? How many points left in the season do you think you gotta take like eight yeah i guess i'd have to 
look at the schedule for all the teams and like think about how many games I can reasonably expect uh, Edmonton and the Jets to take. I mean, how many matchups they have against each other makes a difference. I know Edmonton's just finished their nine-game season sweep of the Senators, so there's no more gimme points in that matchup left for them. If eight sounds pretty reasonable... Yeah, I I think I might go a little higher, like 12, because that's like five wins and seven losses or nine losses and two overtime losses. Like that is easily achievable, five, nine, and two. And that get 12 points and the, yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe 14, (laughs) but that easily achievable. They're in the driver's seat for sure, which is really exciting. And I'm not too even fussed about it. I mean, we're going to have to play these teams in the first two rounds of the playoffs, whatever the order. So whether we have to go up against the Habs, the Oilers, who we've done pretty well against this season and felt a little more comfortable against uh, the Jets, I guess I'd rather have in the second round, get the first round playoff curse broken. But it's really, I don't know, it's going to be more about playing well going into the final stretch than what seed we finish out for me yeah definitely it because right now it's looking like a montreal matchup in the first round which is first of all just awesome yes like it's been a while since we've had a series between these two teams um but then you look if that is the team you're playing in the first round we had a preview of it on wednesday night and there were moments there where the Leafs were just getting abused and obviously that's a current theme. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see when Montreal is down maybe a game or they're down two one and they turn on the, the ick factor with especially Corey Perry leading the way who looks incredible for a guy who is like 40. Um, yeah. It's something you still worry about. And, and that's kind of the, one of the reasons why I still want to hang on to Kerfoot, but um, people still trying to send him out the door. It, it's yeah. I, that's the thing that I worry about heading towards the playoffs is can the Leafs turn up even more that, that grit and the sandpaper factor, because uh, they've started to lean on the skill and, and their defense has been pretty solid as a whole, keeping things to the outside, but I'd like to see them a little bit more, uh, punishment on the forecheck that would be an area where i think i'd like to see them grow i guess i feel like stick to your strengths though like if i my dad was noticing with me watching one game this week last week like they don't they don't make that drop pass as much they're a little happier to dump and chase the puck and i really like the puck possession game for this team and i think it the better they are at it and the more they practice it, the more advantages pop up in different areas. Like you see more comfortable defending like a strong forecheck when you've practiced your puck possession game. You can kill an extra 20 seconds on a penalty kill when you've like got a stronger puck possession game. Um, it, it does take away from a couple odd man rush opportunities where sometimes I might like to see Marner or Nylander just take, accept the one-on-two and like turn on the jets a little but i don't know i i feel like they've got to stick to their strengths which are speed and skill so i don't want to see too much of a uh 
2013 uh, was that <laughs> the coach Carlisle yeah like just turn the, the grit sandpaper factor all the way up yeah uh they had success with that but I you mentioned Nylander I don't know if we want to get there now or if you have any more kind of takeaways from the last two Leafs game uh Simmons scores first time in a while very happy for him uh Barabanov gets his first NHL point TJ Brody gets his first Leafs goal uh some great performance from Jake Allen in that Wednesday game I'm not sure if there's much else there that we need to talk about obviously the game management thing is still very prevalent in my eyes but there's not much really more to talk about it's just keep seeing it and keep being frustrated by it (laughs) once you see it it just doesn't go away yeah every time you feel like there's a penalty against your team every time you feel like your team commits a penalty um it's yeah and and it just generally feels like the Leafs are better at drawing penalties than most teams so if they get a couple early in the game, then they're not going to get one another power play until maybe the third period when they're evened out again, which is, yeah. I hope half the calls I'm seeing getting called right now are not playoff calls because almost every hook and every slash is so benign and doesn't affect the play whatsoever that I could really do without a lot of these. So that's kind of the other part of where my head's at with penalties right now personally yeah but we will i guess we i will move on to the kneelander story yeah i'm not too sure what i heard yesterday the day before i guess was that he had close contact with a possible case and was removed from the game as a precaution i'm not sure where it's progressed to uh so i believe I believe they still haven't heard much and I guess they're keeping pretty tight lipped about it, but no other guys on the team have tested positive yesterday, which is still a very short incubation period. They're going to have to wait a couple days to see uh, the thing that everyone was out in arms about was that he was practicing at the morning skate that day before the game with all the teammates on the ice close to them. And if he had had, the close contact then he should be nowhere near the team in immediately it doesn't matter you just got to take those precautions right because we are seeing what is happening in vancouver and it is a very similar situation and so praying that he is okay and then he can get back to normal whatever that may be but uh it is definitely a situation that they saw what happened in vancouver and then made a similar mistake with the Leafs and hopefully it doesn't come back to bite them. Yeah. I'm not sure when Nylander had the contact, when the team and league was informed about the contact or how to judge that situation. Again, they keep it all pretty tight lipped. So my guess is that they will hold him out a couple more days. I think usually the incubation period is about three days. Um, and which means if they know by tomorrow afternoon, then he will be able to play on Saturday. But uh, I, my expectations are low that he shows up for that game just to be a hundred percent safe, uh, that they've made it through the incubation period. When there is a house on fire, a block away from you, you are extra careful about snuffing your candles and putting all your flammable materials away. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Uh, 
I guess we'll talk a little bit of Montreal Canadiens. They were the team that lost on Wednesday. Uh, still have a couple of games in hand and are chasing uh, Winnipeg and Edmonton in the standings. Uh, but I think the big story there is they lose Brendan Gallagher to the thumb injury. And this is a team that has now experienced a couple of injuries that they're going against. Gallagher's at likely out six weeks with the injury, which feels like it's going to go pretty deep into their playoff uh, run. Um, and as a Leafs fan, obviously you don't want to see people get injured, but this is a guy that you're you're a little bit like, we don't have to go up, up against him. If this is a first-round matchup because he is a guy who brings that pest element and is an absolute pain in the butt to play against. Yeah, one of those do-it-all players that are your worst enemies in playoff matchups. They're also missing price for at least the end of this week, possibly till next week. And you might already see that starting to show. Jake Allen had to start back-to-back nights. They got off to a slow start against the Jets last night, which lost them at... Man, I hate taking notes on Monday games because by Friday morning, it feels pretty irrelevant. I... They did get two points over Edmonton, having a comeback win. So that's three games in a row they've gone down in now. Um, They had a close comeback effort against the Leafs. They made it into a game against the Jets. They did get the two points against uh, Edmonton. And it really stood out to me how they played the three-on-three against McDavid and Dreisaitl because Tippett, the Edmonton coach, is just trying to get them on there for every second of that three-on-three, knowing like all they need is half an opportunity. And Montreal was just accepted that that was going to be the game Edmonton played. So they didn't give them half an opportunity. They really slowed down the puck possession game. And just, if you're going to leave them out there for two minutes, we're going to skate around and do nothing for two minutes, change our lines up constantly and uh, look for our own opportunity. And Eric Stahl with a nice moment, getting his first goal for the Habs in his first game with the Habs. So I'll be interested to see if the Leafs or any other teams have three-on-three games against the Oilers for the rest of the season, if they can take a page out of that book and really just try and make them tired. I mean, don't get me wrong. They were like 90 seconds into their shift and still almost scoring, still almost beating guys on the rush. So it's not a foolproof strategy, but I think it's the best way to neutralize them and worst case you extend it to a shootout and at least you don't have to worry about the terrifying threat that those two three on three are absolutely the canadians also missing joel armia and uh ben Sherat to kind of day-to-day protocols i think uh, armia is out for covid19 protocols and Sherat is a day-to-day injury so two key pieces that they're missing um, as well that hopefully they'll get back shortly and and they can just help bolster their final run but Gallagher's a huge loss he's the heart and soul of that team and so it's it's kind of like the Leafs losing Zach Hyman yeah but but more scoring punch from Gallagher or I don't even know man Hyman's got 13 goals now right he yeah. scored in that Calgary game. Uh, well, like the Leafs losing Zach Hyman if they don't have Mitch Marner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a big loss for them. And uh, yeah, feel for the fan base because it's – and oh God, I, sh- I shudder even proposing the, the 
idea, but it is moving towards a situation where the Toronto Maple Leafs advance in their first playoff series in a very long time over the Montreal Canadiens. And I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, it, you got to stay so hesitant, and I knock furiously on wood, but that's what it feels like, and you got to be happy and just enjoy the moment. All right. <laughs> we will move out of the North Division. Uh, brief trade news. Lou Lamorello getting active early at the deadline. Definitely something we've seen before. Uh, he picks up from the New Jersey Devils, Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac for a first-round pick and a conditional fourth-round pick, and then a couple of prospects. Uh, not too much to say about this move, but it's it's a solid pickup. Two veteran guys who can come in and both of them combined hopefully can provide that same production that they've lost with Anders Lee. Uh, Palmieri shaving the beard was a very interesting side-by-side, just such an odd thing. But when you work under Lou, that's, that's the rules. And uh, yeah, it's a solid pickup for the Islanders. A first round picks a lot to pay, but uh, these are two guys who have been in the league now for a while and know how to get it done and uh, played full rink of hockey both ways and uh, can still put it up on the stat sheet. So should be interesting uh, to see what sort of value they provide to the Islanders. It feels like you can plug a lot of different players into the Islanders system and get similar results. So they're looking for guys who provide a little bit more of that offensive punch because that's something the Islanders have needed to really get over that hump. They're still a team, don't get me wrong, incredible team. I emotionally hedge against them every year because I don't want them to be good, but they consistently are. Uh, but they still need that like secondary scoring punch. If it's not from Barzal, it doesn't really come from anywhere else. They need that to get past that second round. And the second round is amazing. I'm Leaf Sand. Don't get me wrong. I would love the second round. But the Islanders are looking for more. And so this is a good move to bring that secondary scoring to the team to maybe help them push into that final four. Yeah, I feel like it's uh, both sides kind of getting almost the best they can out of this deal. Um, the Islanders get two players retained at, or with half their calories being salaries being retained by the Devils. So really a two for the price of one type move on the cap sheet. They give up that first round pick. If they go deep, then I think that's a worthwhile for two rental players. It's going to be really interesting if Palmieri can get the goal scoring touch he's had going most seasons, except for this one now on a higher level of quality team. They would love it if he can fill that top six, I think, on the second line and add that scoring threat you're talking about. Zajac, I think more going to just bolster up the defense on the bottom six. And yeah, two good tools to have when you're uh, making a playoff run if you're the devils you're hoping that doesn't go well and that pick is as good as it can be i don't know how many games the two teams have left against each other but it'd be interesting to see how hard the devils go to try and get as good of a pick coming their way as they can um that forward core on new jersey is ridiculously young now i was looking at it i think the average age is 22.6 but they're still really looking for that uh number one player they can build a team behind because uh nico hirscher and jack hughes haven't lived up to those hopes and those are still solid players with lots of development ahead of them that could be 
part of a winning team, but they're still missing one really, really elite scoring type player to build a forward core behind. And then Taylor um, Hall. Yeah. Well, I thought the island was Taylor <laughs> Hall. Yeah. I, I joke. I actually think Taylor Hall is not that guy, but no, still I, I funny that they had him a heart trophy winner and then let him walk. Yeah. <laughs> no one really knows what's what's to do with Taylor these days. Yeah. I think he definitely gets moved, but I thought it would be the Islanders because they had yeah. that cap space and and it I kind also kind of look at this trade and feel like it just tells you a bit about what prices were being offered out there for Palmieri as well as what's being asked for Hall. Yeah. And yeah. The the big thing with Taylor Hall is teams are it's hard to really go for this guy if you're getting whatever a one playoff run because basically by the time you get him there's 10 games left in the season you get him for one playoff run is there even enough time to incorporate him in your team and then will he resign no idea right there's no knowledge he said recently that he would be open to resigning with the team that trades for him but it's just the way he's operated especially like the way his agents operated the last couple of years with how they push teams and really he's moved around quite a bit in the last couple of years now. It's just teams are unwilling to really make that high risk move. If you're not whatever 80% sure that he's going to resign with you, because then you're giving up a lot of value for Taylor Hall, who hasn't produced that well, obviously that's a Buffalo Sabres, uh, <laughs> conundrum but and and he didn't really play that well in Arizona either but it's interesting to see the people are willing to give up that price because if if you have to give up a first for Zajac and Palmieri then how much is Taylor Hall going for and if you don't know that you're going to sign him it's I don't know if it's worth it yeah and you you almost know what kind of impact guys like Palmieri and Zajac are going to have in the Islanders and the the floor for success of this deal is I think much higher than the Taylor Hall move whereas the ceiling on a Taylor Hall acquisition could be huge but it also like you're saying could be a bust and I don't know what Buffalo's asking price has been I imagine lots of gms are playing the waiting game knowing that buffalo's kind of backed into a corner if they want to get anything in terms of value for this guy um don't know what their financial structure looks like in terms of retaining salary and how far they're willing to go on that so a lot of questions we'll probably have answered come monday it's it's going to be a little annoying uh recording the podcast knowing a bunch of big trades are about to potentially get made yeah it's it's okay though we our friday monday is pretty standard in terms of time it's just these long weeks when lots of stuff happens between a monday and a friday that then we got to catch up on but we will continue to try and do that as we move along we're going to take a quick break and come back for some combat corner and we're back for some combat corner uh Looks like there is an exciting prospect highlighted coming up this weekend in the world of combat sports. Max, why don't you give us your preview? 
Yeah, we got uh, UFC on ABC for the second time this Saturday, headlined by Vittori Holland. So I'm gonna I'm interested in the main event, of course, and the debut of Aaron Blanchfield. So I'm gonna talk about those two a little more in depth, and then have some quick hits on the rest of the card. But I want to start out with this Aaron Blanchfield because there's been a fair amount of buzz about this girl making her UFC debut on short notice and. When you look at her career so far, I think that buzz is justified. Starting into the MMA game very young as a jiu-jitsu talent, um, she had these two really close fights right at the start of her career, her third and fourth fights against two girls who would then go on to join the UFC before her and both have experienced some success at this level. And both fights were really close. She won one and lost one. I think both were split decisions. Um, she wasn't able to get a ton going in that, but she's really started to make some space since then and show some evolution in her game. Uh, quick wins by Americana, by... Um, head kick knockout and then a really dominant three rounds in her last time out and one of the differences you see between those last two fights and uh, her those first two close fights were the stand-up of improvements she looked so much more comfortable so much more fluid like she was throwing punches to actually land and make space and set up more of her game as opposed to throwing them at air just because that's the thing your coach tell drills you to do at that time and looking kind of robotic and uncomfortable um the head kick the really sensational part of her stand-up game she, with her uh, left leg she can throw that from switch stance southpaw as a normally orthodox fighter and she can also throw it as a lead leg from um the orthodox position she can also land that right leg from orthodox nicely and you saw that earlier in her career she landed a really nice high kick against uh her second matchup didn't have the space for that in those next couple fights but showed it so beautifully against uh victoria leonardo who i think also recently got knocked out by a lead head kick against uh firo so tough luck for her there going up against two girls with really great lead high kicks but uh, Blanchfield set it up so beautifully and she landed it like five times in that fight and the last one finally put her out but every time she was getting uh, her opponent moving with the hands and then hiding that kick so well and she had so much flexibility and quickness on that that she was able to just bring it right up and make crazy impact with it so the comfortable stand-up game, the knockout threat of that high kick, and then some pretty high-level jujitsu if she can get it on the ground. The tough part in those really close fights was um, bringing the two together. She was just kind of constantly at close range, fighting against the cage in the clinch, uh, trying to spin off trying to find her way to a takedown but not really having the momentum the leverage the angles and getting taken down sometimes as well when she was able to dictate the fight at range first and then choose her opportunities to set up the takedown her game looked a lot more solid and uh, hard to test holds in what makes this fight 
interesting is how much bigger her opponent is than her first and foremost. I mean, uh, Norma Dumont came to the UFC to fight Megan Anderson at featherweight. Uh, she then tried to move down to bantamweight in her last fight, which she won, but she missed weight by four and a half pounds. So we'll see if she makes weight for this fight. If maybe just that last fight was a one-off due to the transition of permanently moving down from featherweight to bantamweight. But she in that fight where she missed weight, she had a pretty good showing of herself where she stayed steady on the feet, um, didn't back off too much, kept the hands out there threatening, and you saw the damage really add up over three rounds with her opponent looking more and more hurt, more and more tentative, and she did rock and drop her towards the end of that fight. Also looked very heavy and s solid in the grappling positions, so it's a great test for Blanchfield in that she's going to have an opponent who's probably not going to back up and give her anything really easy in the striking and make her really have to think and set up those high kicks, those shots, uh, stay very aware to be threatening in the pocket and safe. And she's going to have a size disadvantage for sure, whether her opponent makes weight or not, trying to get those takedowns. So she's going to have to be real... Um, intelligent setting them up and using the stand-up to find her moments to shoot and exploiting those moments to the fullest because if her opponent makes a read on them then it's going to be a pretty easy time getting the hips above her and just using pressure to kind of crush her and if she can do all that if she can totally outskill this like bigger stronger woman on 10 days notice then I think the hype train leaves the station at full speed ahead so really looking forward to that one to see what uh, Aaron Blanchfield can do other quick hits it's a really solid main card you've got Mike Perry fighting which is always fun against Daniel Rodriguez who kind of got had a really tight close matchup against Nicholas Dalby last time. So I think he'll be up against a less skilled, less technical opponent in Mike Perry, who is still very dangerous. And you don't really know what reads to make on Mike Perry and his uh, coaching saga in his tax saga in his girlfriend saga. So we'll see where he's at come fight time. Then uh, one, another really exciting one is Nina Nunes, formerly known as Nina Ansaroff. Let you guess where that last name comes from. She was show, making a great showing of herself in women's strawweight right before uh, she took time off for pregnancy. And she like had this amazing performance against Claudia Godelia when Claudia's stock was a bit higher than it is right now. And then she had this fight against Tatiana Suarez, who's one of the like most exciting prospects at women's strawweight, the most exciting probably if she hadn't had such a, wasn't still laid off due to injury since that fight against Nina. But uh, she, Nina had a really great showing in that third round, something no one's been able to do against Suarez, you saw like Esparza get finished by ground and pound really quickly, whereas Nina was able to survive, maintain her cardio, and then put it on in the third round. So going up against a grappler in Mackenzie Dern, be interested to see if she can stay safe from a different grappling threat. And uh, 
she's going to have a huge stand-up advantage in this one. So curious to see if the time off has improved her game. Sparring around the best has got to help. Uh, Dern looked like she really relied on a physical advantage in a technical dead-even match, whereas both sides really had not a lot of technique in the stand-up in her last fight. So I think Nina's going to have a huge technical advantage here, maybe a bit uh, behind on the athleticism, but I'm curious to see if she can pick up where she left off. Sam Alvey seems to do his best to make every fight he's in pretty boring these days. He's going up against Julian Marquez. I, he just tries to bring it to as few strikes thrown as possible. Uh, he has that one-punch knockout power, so guys hesitant to get in his face, pull the trigger too much. I think uh, Marquez will be happy to bring it and try and make it a bit more of a firefight than the typical Sam Alvey fight is, so that should be good. And I love this co-main event, Arnold Allen versus Sadiq Youssef. Both guys going up against the toughest matchup they've ever had, riding a lot of momentum, exciting prospects, crossroads fight where... Uh, Whoever wins just gets to keep on moving towards the top of that division and a necessary fight to thin the competition as it gets uh, more intense at the higher levels. Sadiq, super powerful guy, won his last fight kind of off the back of a really dominant wrestling second round. Arnold Allen, been really exciting guy for a while, um, very technical, got the stand-up, got the chokes shows like he can put it all together at a pretty high level but again toughest opponent to date for each fighter both had some tough matchmaking luck in 2020 with covid so excited to see these guys go at it then we get to the main event marvin vittori versus kevin holland i feel like kevin holland is setting a record here for like back-to-back -back fight nights headlined last appeared against brunson on march 20th we had Ngannou Miocic, we had a week off, and now we've got Vittori Holland. So with Holland, you're obviously thinking about that Brunson fight. It's right in the rearview mirror. Brunson really able to impose the wrestling. The, the fight really did get off on the wrong foot for Holland as he slipped on it, and Brunson just saw the game plan there laid out in front of him found he could control holland on the mat um really showed off his takedown prowess mixing it up with like body lock trips single legs double legs chaining some of those together but pretty much able to get holland down every time he tried and there wasn't a whole lot holland could do about it now he gets a chance for redemption on short notice against marvin vittori and at first look, it really does look like Vittori could do the exact same thing Brunson just did to Holland, which I think speaks to the betting line with uh, Vittori as a heavy favorite in this fight. He he has the strength. He has the wrestling ability, which he's shown in his last two fights, going toe-to-toe -to -toe and staying dominant in most of the grappling positions with Hermanson, who is a very high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, most of those grappling positions were initiated by Hermanson, which is, I think, why Vittori was able to stay so dominant in them. Like I spoke about earlier with uh, Blanchfield, Dermont, if one fighter 
if the smaller fighter like initiates the grappling exchange then it's pretty if you're a similar level of grappling ability it's pretty easy to stay dominant in those positions that's what happened hermanson vittori in his the fight before that though he took it to the floor against robertson and in more competitive scrambling than i think anyone would have guessed but ultimately able to ground and pound rear naked choke his way to a first round victory in that matchup so marvin vittori very skilled grappler um the strength and the technique to do what Derek brunson did but will he is the question because the hidden storyline is Israel Adesanya looking for his next title shot. He wanted it to be against Darren Till, who was supposed to match up with the Vittori, and you knew if Till won this fight, that was probably what was going to happen. But with Till pulled out, it's between this matchup and next week's main event matchup between Whitaker and Gaslam. And you feel like there's an avenue for... Whitaker and Vittori for sure to each earn a title shot, maybe Gaslam. Holland, it's really hard to imagine, but you never know it, how much leverage Izzy is going to have with how much he hates rematches. But Vittori gets the real first good crack at it. Um, if he can put on a show, look dominant, look impressive, and make a case, then there's a very good chance he gets the next title shot. I think his rematch case, Israel would probably prefer the Vittori rematch to the Whitaker rematch in terms of how the fight went and how recently it was. Both favor Vittori. So I'm curious how safe he's going to play this. This is a Southpaw Orthodox matchup where both fighters best strike might be their straight as both hurt and dropped their opponent with that shot in the last fight so look for each to be looking for that um holland i feel like has nothing to lose here so maybe he gets wild and explosive early i i don't think that would be a wise move on his part as that's just how the fight gets behind you quickly and then you're chasing it and we saw that not work out for him at all in his last fight but Marvin Vittori is going to be the most technical striker that Kevin Holland has gone against so he's going to have to make adjustments we're going to see how high level the striking is because it obviously looked great last year against lesser opponents so really fun main event hoping to see a bit of a show put on, hoping to see Vittori really try and make his case for a title shot against Kevin Holland and do something better than what Brunson did to him. Curious to see if Holland can do anything differently, if he can show us that that wasn't his best night out, or maybe he's just in it for a quick payday. I don't know. We will find out Saturday night, and I will be here to tell you about it Monday morning. And we're back talking about a little bit of West Coast envy in between segments here. Uh, it's time for some b-ball talk. Yes, just briefly. I was telling Max during our break, if I lived on the West Coast, I would have no friends because they get to watch all these basketball games at 4 or 5 o'clock and then jump right into the evening games at 7, 8 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. But for me, some of these West Coast games start a little bit too late. And it sucks because you're missing out on some of the best basketball. I think 
one of the the games specifically I have in mind from this week was the Phoenix Suns and the Utah Jazz on Wednesday night. A game that went to overtime featured the number one and number two team in the Western Conference, uh, and they just absolutely dueled it out. It was an awesome game based on the highlights. Uh, Mitchell played really well. Devin Booker played really well. And Chris Paul really controlled the ship for Phoenix down the stretch. But uh, unfortunately, I do not live in the West. Uh, I live in the East Coast. And the team that I cheer for is the Toronto Raptors, who I want to start off this segment talking about. It feels, again, (laughs) we may have to do a, a third podcast. Probably not. Don't have enough time for that. But Uh, Monday feels so far away back when Gary Trent Jr. was hitting the buzzer beater on the Washington Wizards. Uh, Malachi Flynn with the breakout game of 16 points, six rebounds, four assists, four steals, three blocks, uh, just all over the place. Everyone was so excited. And then two games have happened since then. One of them where OG body slammed Dennis Schroeder (laughs) as they got it mixed up. That was a great meme. Uh, If we're thinking meme of the week segment, Max, that's a one to put in there. Uh, It was a WWE WrestleMania ring and OG was flipping Schroeder after he hard fouled him on a, on a breakaway layup. I was browsing the MMA subreddit and I was very confused to see OG and Anobi's name in there. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Montrez Harrell gets involved. Both him and OG get ejected. DeAndre Bembry and Fred Van Bleet get suspended one game because they came off the bench to uh, enter the brawl. Uh, so they were not playing last night as the Raptors lose a pretty important game to the Chicago Bulls in terms of making that playing game because the Bulls are the team ahead of them directly in the standings. Uh, so that is a, a tough loss. I or think, is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I was texting my mom last night. She's already like, this sucks. Why does it suck to watch the Raptors? I was like, you forget 10 years ago what it was like to watch this team. And also her husband and her son are both diehard Leafs fans. So this is nothing. This is this is Raptors. Every team gets like a grace period after a championship. I feel like in Toronto sports, it's a longer grace period than some cities just because of the pain and sorrow that we have dealt with. Uh, and so the Raptors team after having an incredible championship defense run last year. And even this year, this year is a throwaway season. Like, I don't know how many times I got to say it, but this year is a throwaway season. Uh, And so if you can somehow have this team that was just last year, one game away from the Eastern Conference Finals, if you have this team with chances at getting a top five NBA draft pick with most of their core still intact, you got to be happy because then they can just turn around, either leverage the pick into an, something else, or you turn around and you add another top five talent to your team and you're good to take off. Once again, you're back home in Toronto. Everything's better. So yeah, it, it might suck to watch the Raptors right now, but still you've got the guys who you really enjoy to watch. Chris Boucher with career high points and rebounds last night always seems to have good games when the Raptors lose. I don't know if there's anything there, but it's something to look at for sure. Um, there are bright spots. Gary Trent Jr., tough game last night, but has looked really good since coming over in the trade. Malachi Flynn getting more minutes. He, he's going to make a ton of mistakes. He's a rookie. People seem to forget that already. He is a rookie point guard. As a rookie, Fred Van Vliet was playing in the G League. Pascal Siakam was playing in the G League. Like 
Norm Powell is playing in the G League. Like all these guys who had become staples were nowhere near as polished as Malachi Flynn is already in his rookie season. And he's something about being a four-year player raises expectations for less of those mistakes and a little more readiness. Well, Fred Van Vliet was as well Hmm. uh, and went undrafted, right? So there's a pedigree here for Malachi and you got to give just guards as like, especially the tools are there for most guards, but it's about adapting to the speed of the NBA game. And so he still has to do that. And unless you're a top, like a lottery pick as a guard, you're not ever expected to just jump in and be great right away. And so this is an excellent opportunity. Of course, Fred will be back, but the one game suspension and Kyle Lowry, I feel like the Raptors are just kind of like hush, hush, keep him out as long as he can keep him healthy, allow the tank to happen. Um, it's great opportunity here for Malachi to get a ton of looks, ton of reps uh, against some top tier point guards. So I've loved to see how he's been adapting to it. The thing that I've loved about Malachi is, no matter what's happening on the offensive end, he really tries on the defensive end. He's still got lots to learn, but he really tries. He keeps his feet moving. He stays in front of guys, really active hands. Like you see a lot of similarities to that Fred Van Vliet comp where Fred, it's so weird. Fred gets credited for like blocks when he strips centers going up for dunks and stuff like that. They should all just be steals. If they were all steals, he'd lead the league in steals. Um, But he gets like blocks for those kind of midway strips and malachi malachi has shown that he can do that too he's got active hands uh he can strip guys i think it was last night who was trying to drive from the top uh might have been daniel tice and malachi like stripped him <laughs> like he wasn't even dribbling the ball it was just like this is mine thank you let's go the other way uh so really have loved watching him and eventually yeah. siakam ananobi malachi defense with like Maybe it's Boucher. Maybe it's a top five, top 10 pick. That's like a big, mm-hmm. um, that under Nick Nurse's uh, tutelage yeah. and coaching, that could be the best defense in the league. Well, and so that's a great segue into my next piece of Raptors talk I want to talk about is maybe another guy you throw into that combination is Ken Birch, who is, uh, has just been waived by the Orlando Magic yesterday and is expected to sign with the Raptors. No official news through there yet, but it feels like it's pretty much a done deal. Uh, we'll get news of that at some point, probably today, I imagine. Uh, but Ken Birch, a Canadian, a kind of power forward center hybrid. Again, <laughs> Raptors seem to love these guys right now, but he's undersized at the center position, uh, but he's got a lot of toughness plays with a lot of heart. Whenever he plays the Raptors, it seems like he gets five blocks in that game. Like he is a rim protector, which is something the Raptors are missing because Boucher gets blocks, but they're not your like traditional guard, the rim blocks. And that's transition flying. Yeah. And, and that's what Ken Birch can provide a little bit more of. He's again, undersized, but he can jump with the big boys. And so he had, he, he, and he can block smaller guys rather effectively and so it's another kick at the can at the center position uh Ken Birch has come out and said previously he's loved playing under Nick Nurse uh when he was playing on Team Canada uh this last year uh as Nick Nurse was the coach so he loves his coaching style uh so you know there'll be a good fit there just team chemistry wise and it'll be interesting to see Ken Birch uh maybe a little bit more of a lob threat than anything Kyle's had in a long time because we've had a lot of grounded centers. Jonas Valanciunas, by the way, 
I because I was gonna go through Valentinus Baines, Ibaka, Gasol. None of them are really like high flyers. Valentinus, by the way, is just destroying people for Memphis. Like so incredibly underrated at this point in his career, but he consistently will have nights where he'll put like 18 points and 20 rebounds on your head. And is like, I'm going to just get the ball in the post and obliterate you. So fun. Like, I'm so happy for him that he's continued to be a high level producer for, for, a, for a good team. Memphis is a good team, even if, cause they're just stuck in the West. If they're in the East, they'd be the fourth best team in the East. Um, yeah. And so, so happy for Jonas, but Yeah. Our point guards have not really had a high-flying center. Boucher gets up for the alley-oops, but he's not as physical enough to set those screens that lead to those lobs often enough. Like, guys get around. Yeah, he's not thick enough, right, to set those solid screens that really open up lanes. Like, that's why Gobert is incredible. He's a lob threat, but he also sets hard screens that freeze up that lane for him to dive into. And so Ken Birch, I think, is probably the best sort of guy – that's available right now for the Raptors to pick up who can do a little bit more of that, like set a solid screen and be a lob threat. And that might actually open up their offense a little bit more. Again, I was very high on Aaron Baines when he came and he has not been good for the Raptors this season. So obviously we're going to have a little bit of upside bias whenever a new guy is joining your team. Uh, but I'm excited to see what Ken Birch can add uh, another Montreal native. So him and Chris, Chris Boucher can speak a little bit of French out on the court when they're playing defense and, uh, that was the thing I loved about Serge Ibaka is he spoke like eight different languages and could just communicate with everyone, speak French with Gas- or Spanish with Gasol, French with Boucher, English with other guys. Uh, I don't, yeah, he's just like, so always nice to have multilingual guys on the team, <laughs> throw a little bit of different languages in there, throw the other guys off. Um, yeah. 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 Ken Birch, five points, five rebounds a game, nothing special. A little bit undersized, so you'll still give up rebounding. Uh, You'll still have a little bit of trouble there. He can hit the corner three as well, but hopefully providing a different look with just a little bit more uh, upside in the air and a little bit more upside at the rim in terms of rim protection. But we shall see. I think we'll get good energy out of him. So excited for that. Let's move on. we will touch on one more team in the East and then finally get back to the West. Uh, I wanted to just have a moment of Kyrie Irving appreciation as a basketball player. I know most of the season on the podcast, all the stories about Kyrie have been, where is he? Where's he going? Uh, What's the sage? What he's just taking a dip from the team. Wait till him and Katie and Harden are all together. Blah, blah, blah. We haven't talked about him enough as just a basketball player. And he is probably the greatest finisher at his size of all time. He's up there with Allen Iverson. Uh, He's up there with, I don't know who even else you want to put up there, but just at whatever, 5'11", 6 foot, the way that he scores, like the layup that he made against the Knicks the other night where he drove in, there was like four guys reaching in on him, and then he jumped, and there were two guys with their hands straight up. And as he jumped, he had the ball in his right hand, and then switched it to his left and pushed it up on his way down. And it went in. It's just like unbelievable stuff from him. Uh, He had a dunk against the Pelicans the other night. That was nice. And yeah, he just like this week, especially has just been cooking guys, like pulling out all the moves in his bag. Unguardable. He had this double step back hesitation dribble and then drove and then stepped it back again on Steven Adams and pulled the jump shot. It was just, 
ridiculous stuff. So I had to have a Kyrie appreciation moment. He's been on fire. Kevin Durant finally back this week um, against the New York Pelicans. First play that he was back in the game, catches a, a mid-range opportunity around a Kyrie pin down screen, just nails a mid-range jumper, makes it look so easy, so fluid. Uh, that's the thing that he'll never lose is the shot, but you just worry about the explosiveness and having to put too much wear and tear on his body now with the injuries in, in sequence, the sequential injuries. And uh, But if he's just shooting, there's no one can guard him if he's just shooting. Uh, and so really excited to see finally what this big three will look like together. I think they've only been in five games together or seven games together total. So uh, yeah, really exciting stuff. Aldridge has been pretty solid for them. The Nets are a team that that is the leading favorite right now to be in the NBA Finals. And with the Lakers guys out right now, I'd say they're the favorite to win the championship as it stands. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We will move on to the West and talk about another team that has been skyrocketing up the power rankings along with the Brooklyn Nets, and that is the Denver Nuggets. They have are undefeated since acquiring Aaron Gordon at the trade deadline on March 28th. I think they are 6-0, and 5-0 uh, with Gordon. And this team, man, it's just such a perfect placement for Gordon. What he does is he comes in and provides the Paul Millsap minutes at a higher level. He plays better defense, which then proceeds to move Will Barton into his more natural position at the two rather than having him undersized guarding threes. So he just basically takes Gary Harris's spot in the lineup and he is a walking bucket. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. has been way more engaged on defense. He flies in and grabs these crazy offensive rebounds. Like you forget Michael Porter, like shooter, all he's also 6'10", 6'11". Like he did get comps to Kevin Durant in high school, just in the way that he was so long and could make these really high level of difficulty shots over anyone and make it look easy. But he also flies in and grabs these crazy rebounds on both ends because he's so tall and he is physical. And so really exciting to see him starting to be engaged on the defensive end. He's never going to be that high level defender, but if he gives effort, he can be a great off ball defender with his length. Uh, and disrupt passing lanes and, and protect the rim on the weak side. Uh, and with Nikola Jokic, Gordon and Porter cutting off the ball is like, I, I just got goosebumps run down my arms. Like, it's just so much fun to watch these two operate. They start running these plays where Jamal Murray sets backdoor screens for Gordon kind of near the free throw line with Jokic holding about the high post and Gordon will cut to the rim and Jokic can either just throw like his patented over the head, perfect pass for a layup or it sucks in gravity. And then Jamal Murray, once sets the screen, he just fades out to the three point line uh, and gets an open three and they can run those actions with, with Murray, with Barton, with Porter, with Gordon uh, and Jokic just finds them all. Like it's so awesome because it's such a big target. Uh, I think Gordon, I don't remember the exact exact stats, but in his time with the Nuggets, he's already like dribbling, dribbling the ball half as much, and he's averaging more points per possession, just showing you like the value of him as an off ball cutter. And then he provides them a ton of size. Like when he's engaged, we saw it, the Toronto Orlando series uh, in that magical playoff run, Gordon was playing as good as defense you could play against Kawhi Leonard. And he showed that against uh, the LA Clippers this week where the Nuggets and Clippers both basically both had their full teams and the Nuggets just won straight up. 
and Gordon was a big factor in, in that guarding uh, Kawhi and then guarding Paul George a little bit. So this Nuggets team definitely on the rise. Uh, you worry a little bit about their depth, uh, especially like Campazzo, great player, but a little bit undersized and will get abused in those late playoff series. Uh, PJ Dozier, solid. Monte Morris, solid. Again, a little undersized. Uh, Paul Millsap will be great for them off the bench. Uh, JaVale McGee will be a good room protector. But just, yeah, the bench, I don't know what's there. Obviously, that's not as big a factor in the playoffs when you go down to seven, eight-man rotations. But, uh, yeah, Nuggets definitely on the rise and really fun to watch this team. They play the San Antonio Spurs again tonight uh, and just keep watching to see how this team continues to develop. Uh, yeah, that is, yeah. And, and Eric Gordon being like the fourth option on this, fifth option offensively on this team just – makes their ceiling so high <laughs> yeah, it'll be real interesting to see if they can get to a point to rerun that series with the lakers and what having gordon as a piece to defend uh, james if he's back in mm-hmm. changes the dyna- dynamic between those yeah. two teams definitely and and as it stands right now again i am so this is why i was talking about living on the west coast i am so pumped for the western conference playoffs because as it stands right now the four or five matchup in the West is Los Angeles Lakers visiting the Denver Nuggets <laughs> and the Lakers are in trouble. They could fall down the, these standings a little bit. They've got two and a half game lead over the Dallas Mavericks for the seven spot. Uh, and Dallas is picking it up. They beat Milwaukee last night. Uh, great win over Utah on Monday. Uh, Luca's really turned up the heat and, and Porzingis, as long as he's healthy, he's a really important piece for them. Uh, and so Dallas is, is rising up the rankings. You could see Los Angeles fall to a play-in game, which would be DEFCON 1 in LA. Especially when you've got two players coming back from injury, and then it's like, okay, you've got this huge mountain to climb just to get to that like final four spot in the playoffs where you are going to be playing, coming back with extra wear and tear. Yeah. Just imagine if you're Phoenix, though. And you've worked all season. You have this two seed. You're feeling so good about yourself. First playoff series, and you have the Los Angeles Lakers because they oh. fell to the seven seed. It like, goes both ways, eh? Yeah, just brutal. Uh, but yeah, that's just one of the storylines that's made this West so intriguing and so exciting. So shout out to the Denver Nuggets. Last, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> well, the last thing I wanted to touch on uh, was... Although the New Orleans Pelicans uh, have lost two in a row now to the Hawks and the Brooklyn Nets this week, they did sign Isaiah Thomas to a 10-day contract. Very, very, very happy to see him back in the league. Uh, Kind of crappy situation in Boston where he gave that city so much and then they just basically moved off of him uh, in the Kyrie trade. Pretty cold-hearted move by Danny Ainge and then Injuries have really derailed him since then. Uh, fell out of the league for a little bit and finally getting an opportunity with the Pelicans. He scored 10 points against the Hawks. Get a little bit of action against the Nets. Obviously not his former self, but great that he's getting a shot and I hope he works his way back to a, a contract for the rest of the season because that would just be nice to see. So shout out to Isaiah Thomas, man. Uh, good to see him back in the league because he was an awesome storyline that that run with the Celtics that year. Yeah, I was living with a Celtics fan that year, so weird to hear heard that name a lot and then totally went off the map. Yeah. All righty. Uh, 
that is it for my NBA storylines. We will now jump to the NCAA because believe it or not, (laughs) we have not talked about the final that happened on Monday. Feels like a year ago now. Uh, It's been talked to death, so I don't really need to talk too much about the game itself. Essentially, Baylor was full of a bunch of elite athletes uh, who Gonzaga really hadn't seen at all this season. We had our worries going into it that playing a bunch of blowout games would not prepare you for a game that was going to be tight or a game that they actually were losing. And that is what happened. Baylor jumped on them early, way faster, way more physical, uh, way more athletic. And Gonzaga just never recovered. Jalen Suggs had early foul trouble. That didn't help. But he was really the only guy who could keep up with that Gonzaga team in terms of just athletic tools because Suggs is a freak of nature. Um, But great game for Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell. Their stocks have been rising throughout the tournament. Uh, And then Drew Timmy and Corey Kispert, their stocks definitely fell in that game. Uh, But, yeah, congrats to Baylor. It was an it was an awesome performance. I tuned out pretty early on because it seemed like there wasn't going to be a comeback from Gonzaga. They just were getting beat in every facet of the game. And so uh, a wonderful performance from Baylor and, and their, their top guys are going to definitely move up the draft with that performance. The story I wanted to take away from March Madness or this final championship game is so far in 2021, the top sporting moments, at least in U.S. sports, North American sports, have kind of been duds, right? You've got the NCAA championship game for college football, and Alabama blows the doors off Ohio State. The Super Bowl. Tampa Bay really runs Kansas City out of the building. It wasn't close. As much as people were excited for it, wasn't close. And now we've got March Madness final. Wasn't close. Blowout. Uh, so those kind of top three signature moments so far in the sports calendar, not been that entertaining. I'm looking for a little bit more because <laughs> normally yeah. one of those is usually a lot more exciting. We haven't had, I guess, any of that back and forth action where so-and-so one team has the momentum, the other team takes it and they duke it out and you get to some late game heroics-esque or at least big moments. I guess the, it's funny looking back, the Super Bowl still felt close just because of what Kansas City had done for years in terms of comebacks and never being out of it. But yeah, I don't know. What what are your eyes on, if anything, for what that could look like in terms of a big game moment match? Yeah, and it's not to say that there haven't been awesome moments this year. I'm just talking about finals yes. specifically, uh, where they've really come up flat. And so I guess the next big, obviously you've got the masters this weekend for a lot of people. That's a big event. Uh, You're looking towards Wimbledon and the French open as individual sports that are going to be exciting. Uh, I guess besides that, you've got kind of your major North American league playoffs and one of the, those are just different because there's just more games, right? It's not a one game event like um, hopefully we'll have a game seven at some point in one of these playoffs which might end up making up for this dud so far in in finals but uh it's a little bit easier for them because they have more games to play out and more moments to have so in terms of like one gamer i guess the next big thing that i'd really be looking for is like the champions league final which is setting up to be really exciting and we'll get there shortly with my football fan cave segment 
but besides that, like, I don't know what the next big moment on the sports calendar is, but looking for the, uh, the excitement to be ramped up a little bit more in terms of, uh, events. And, and I think a big part of that will be a lot of fans are going to come back this summer, especially in the U S because they are pumping out the vaccines. And so, uh, that, that'll definitely change things, but yeah, some of those like one game individual, uh, hype moments have fallen up short. And I just wanted to point that out. Cause I'm not sure anyone's talked about that yet. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right. That wraps up the basketball portion of the podcast. We will come back and talk some baseball. All right. I don't have a lot to say here. So all I need to say is take it away. Oh, yeah. Uh, more handoffs. Hopefully I won't have any fun fumbles, but, uh, we, we are right back into, uh, other sports that I follow a lot more intently than Max does. So we'll kick it off with baseball. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, three and four now as of recording this podcast. They just had their home opener last night, an extra innings loss to the Los Angeles Angels and the ever-present MVP Mike Trout. Just so fun to watch this dude play and hit and do all the awesome things that he does. But uh, it's been a full week of Blue Jays baseball, and so I will talk about my key takeaways uh, from this week. Steven Matz in his Blue Jays de- debut, so, so solid. Uh, six and a third, nine strikeouts, one run. Uh, really important if he can be a reliable starter for them full-time throughout this season because they need guys to take the ball. And uh, it's a they used their bullpen way too heavily last year, and they're going to have to use it a lot less in a 162-game season. And so if Matz can log a bunch of innings for them, that's huge. So shout out to Steven Matz. Tanner Roark, on the other hand, really tough outing. He's still going to get run because he is a workhorse and can take a ton of innings. But if he's going to continue to give up a bunch of runs, uh, that can't happen. And so need him to step it up a little bit. Uh, The bats are a little bit slow right now. And this was the team's like billing. This is what everyone was excited for. Uh, They are a team that's going to put up a ton of runs. And right now, are struggling to do so. Uh, it's the pitching has been actually pretty solid and I've been impressed, but the hitting really needs to step it up. Uh, Semyon leads the team in home runs. Grichuk's off to a good start. Vladdy's off to a really good start, which I'm happy about. Uh, but looking for a little bit more uh, from some of these other guys, Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel, uh, Kevin Biggio. And I think once George Springer finally comes back, he'll still be out for this homestand, maybe a little bit longer, but when George Springer comes back, they're really going to have an awesome lineup. Cause right now, Joe panic has been hitting in some of these games and uh, it's not ideal, even though he's been decent. Once George Springer's back and you put him into that leadoff spot, instead of Marcus Simeon, it just bumps everyone back one spot in the, uh, in the lineup. And then you've got Randall Grichuk who's batting like 350 right now in the eighth spot. And that makes the lineup a lot more dangerous. Uh, so just, Waiting for George to come back. Really excited to see what he can do. Uh, and uh, exciting. We get to see the Blue Jays go up against uh, Shohei Otani this weekend. So should be interesting to see that. <laughs> we move off of the Jays uh, and into a AL East rival, the New York Yankees, acquiring Ronid Odor from the Texas Rangers, most infamously known for the punch of Jose Bautista uh, at second base. And is a guy who Blue Jays fans hate more than any, probably any other player in, in the league. 
Uh, lots of history there when he was a part of the Texas Rangers. Right now, he is a depth player for the Yankees. Has not hit very well since like 2015. I think he's around 200 batting average and uh, is a lot less dangerous than Blue Jays seem to think he is. Uh, but still, no love lost there. I'm sure whenever he gets announced at the Blue Jays' next home game, they're going to boo him quite heavily. Uh, so all my homies hate Odor, and hopefully he struggles with the Yankees. <laughs> Moving along, uh, another cool storyline coming out of the MLB this week was Akil Badu of the Detroit Tigers. His first major league appearance, he hits a home run on the first pitch he sees. His second major league game hits his first grand slam of his career. His third major league game, he hits a walk-off single for the Detroit Tigers. A great start to the career of Akil Badu. We also we all also saw uh, Yerman Mercedes going eight for eight for the beginning of his career. So a couple of uh, rookies having great starts to the career. Always happy to see that. So shout out to Akil. Uh, and then finally, the Milwaukee Brewers. I picked them a little bit controversially to lead. Uh, the NL Central, and I picked them to do so because of their two young starters, uh, Corbin Burns and, and Woodruff, and they were showing up for me early. Burns had a no-no going through six innings, uh, finally gave up a hit, but these two great starts to, for, at the beginning of the season, and I look for them to continue to keep that rolling, and uh, yeah, excited to see what they can do. So shout out to uh, Burns and Woodruff of the Milwaukee Brewers off to a great start, and my pick's feeling a little bit better. But again, we are seven, eight games into the season. There is still 150 games left, which is just ridiculous. They really need to shorten the number of games in the season, but that is the way it is, and baseball will just keep vibing along. All right, we will not need to take a break here. I will move right into the football fan cave. Yes, you're welcome, Max. Uh, and talk a little bit of NFL really quickly before we get in Champions League. Sam Darnold on the move to the Carolina Panthers. He escapes the New York Jets franchise. Uh, the Panthers send back a six-round pick in the upcoming NFL draft, a 2022 second and a fourth. And ends up being a solid trade on both sides. I don't think Sam Darnold was worth a first-round pick. Carolina didn't have to give one up. But a second, a fourth, and a sixth is pretty decent price in today's NFL. Uh, and so they get a run at Sam Darnold, who's immediately going to get a bump from no longer being in Adam Gase's offense. Uh, so exciting for him to get a new look and hopefully flash some of the tools that he showed potential of uh, when he was back at USC. Uh, but looking forward to see how Sam Darnold can perform on the jet uh, on the Panthers, pardon me, and the jets get a little bit more draft capital. They are going to get take a shot, I guess, at Zach Wilson, it looks like right now. Uh, for the Panthers, I still wouldn't count them out on drafting a quarterback because you never know if Sam Darnold's going to be the answer and might as well have another guy in there just to choose from. Uh, and they have an opportunity. They have the eighth pick, so there might be a quarterback left at that point. Uh, but going to be really interesting because now we basically know Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Mac Jones are the top three picks. We don't know what Atlanta is going to do. And the price has been set by the 49ers moving up. And uh, there's a bunch of teams, kind of seven, eight, nine, including my Denver Broncos, who are looking for a quarterback, but they might be all gone by that point. So it will be interesting to see what happens leading up to the draft, where people are going to move. But uh, shout out to Sam Darnold. Hopefully he turns things around because 
really tough couple of years uh, with the New York Jets franchise. Champions League, it happened this week. Kind of snuck up on me because uh, for some reason, I do not get the alerts on my phone like I want to. But alas, I was still managed to catch most of the action. And of course, my housemate being a huge Borussia Dortmund fan, a tough one this week for them. Solid result in the end. They get an away goal, uh, but they give up a 90th uh, minute goal to uh, a young budding star of Manchester City, Fogan. Uh, he scores late. Uh, Holland, who had been awesome for Dortmund, had a nice assist on the Thomas Roy goal in the 84th minute, but besides that, was a little bit invisible, which is tough. But uh, hey, that's going to happen. It's Champions League. He's 20 years old you're not going to have an amazing game every time you step out on the pitch. Uh, so Manchester City in a good spot heading back to Germany uh, with a 2-1 lead on aggregate, but all it takes is, is one goal from Dortmund. A one nothing finish would give them uh, the opportunity to advance in Champions League and Manchester City hopefully looking to hold on uh, to avoid another loss before the semifinals because they have really struggled in Champions League, hoping to break the curse for them. Uh, another story out of that game was just an egregious missed call. Uh, Jude Bellingham basically steals the ball off the goaltender's foot and puts it in the back of the net, but called for a foul. Uh, and with even all the VAR stuff that <laughs> these refs have now in soccer, they couldn't review that because I don't know why. Uh, it should have been a goal, and Dortmund should have had should have tied it 1-1 much earlier in the game than they did. Uh, and so if I'm a Dorman fan, I am fuming because that is a really tough one. And Bellingham, what is he, 18? Had an incredible performance. Uh, is looking to be a stud, a really young stud moving up in, in the world. Other game that happened on Tuesday was Real and Liverpool. Uh, Real jumped over Liverpool early. Uh, Liverpool runs a high line and uh, Tony Cruz had an incredible ball. Madrid was really able to take advantage of the high line. They also get a, a little bit of a gift poor header by the right back sends the ball right into the path of their striker scores. So they have a three, one lead on aggregate going into the second leg this next week. Uh, PSG Kylian Mbappe, man, he is on top of the world. He is the best player in the world right now. I don't care better than Ronaldo, better than Messi right now. He guys unstoppable. Uh, he scores twice. The, the second goal he scored was just so beautiful. Uh, and PSG takes a 3-2 lead over the defending champions, Bayern, in their first leg. That will be a really, really fun one to watch next week uh, in the second leg. And then finally, Chelsea taking care of business against Porto. Dominant performance on the road. They have, unless it's a monumental collapse, they've pretty much set themselves up with two away goals. Uh, they look to be headed to the semis and as it stands right now, you could have a potential Chelsea, PSG, Real Madrid, Manchester City Final Four, which is a lot of money and a lot of power and uh, not really any fun teams to cheer for there because they're all kind of the top dogs in their respective leagues. So kind of crappy from that perspective because, uh, yeah, you uh, there are a lot of teams or at least in, in football, there are a lot of those top teams that no one likes, right, because they're just too good. It's kind of like the Yankees. Uh, in the Dodgers and in, in baseball. So, and yeah, so 
hopefully at least one of these underdogs can make a comeback. There's not really many underdogs left. I guess like the one team that could really jump in and cause havoc would be Dortmund because they are probably the smallest team out of the ones I left them in Porto. Uh, so yeah, fun stuff coming up in the champions league to watch next week. Uh, looking forward to it. And the last story I want to get to in the football fan cave before we take one final break is Toronto FC finally back. Uh, it's been a while. I trying to keep up with them. It's really hard to find their games right now before uh, the MLS season kicks off, but they played in the CONCACAF champions league, which is <laughs> MLS. And then the uh, Mexican soccer league. Not many people know that it's going on, but TFC, they get a great result on the road, a brutal own goal for the Lyon side, uh, a pressure and then a, a back and then a attempted through ball gets kicked by the defender and just goes right over his goalie into the net, like an absolutely brutal own goal. Uh, so TFC gets a one, one draw and because they have an away goal, it's a great result. Uh, and they will be back home in, in Tampa Bay. <laughs> Tampa Bay is just Toronto South right now because the Blue Jays, TFC, and the Raptors are all playing there. Uh, they'll be back there in a bit to get the second leg, but their season gets any underway next week. We get to see a fresh perspective with the new manager. And uh, yeah, best of luck to TFC on their upcoming season. Uh, kind of falling under the radar, and I'm sure not a lot of people listening to the podcast care, but I care. Another Toronto team to cheer for. And so we will track their progress throughout the season. We will take one last break uh, so I can catch my breath. And then we'll finish up with some golf and a little bit of challenge. Hey, remember me and what my voice sounds like? Well, remember it now because you're about to forget again. Uh, we got some <laughs> golf and some television to talk about. Yes, uh, the Masters get underway this weekend. Uh, yesterday was the first round. Uh, it's a historic tournament finally back in its rightful place in the sports calendar after being played actually quite recently back in November, but it is normally an April tournament. Uh, and so back in its rightful place, funny play yesterday, Roy McElroy, uh, on the seventh hole, his second shot actually hits his father who is watching, uh, just on the side, like what it one in a million chances that you hit your own dad with your second approach shot. And so I thought that was funny. And a lot of people commenting on the video saying his dad should have redirected it back onto the fairway to help him out. <laughs> but I don't think he was expecting it. So a funny moment there. I think Rory's uh, four over par to start today. Justin Rose with an incredible 65 shot round. Uh, he leads the pack by four strokes. He's seven under par, a uh, bunch of people at, in second at three under. Uh, so he had an incredible first round. Uh, the story is that after the historically high final score of Dustin Johnson in November shooting 20 under, a lot of the officials at Augusta wanted to make this one a lot more difficult to play. And so the greens are super hard, super fast. Uh, we've seen a couple putts already just roll right off the green and into the water hazards. So uh, looking for that to really even the score in terms of shot making. And uh, that will be the story as we go throughout the weekend. But it is underway as of right now. Canadian Mackenzie Hughes is right up there on the leaderboard. Uh, he's shooting. He was shooting two under. It looks like he's dropped out now. Uh, we've got a, a, a move being made by a Weisberger, who's four under par uh, today. 
and uh, yeah, just keep following along. Nothing too exciting. I know some people have uh, <laughs> interest, but I'm not sure it's going to be many people on this podcast. <laughs> but always good to shout out the Masters. Uh, it is a it is a cool time in the sports calendar. It's a very historic tournament, and those green jackets are awful special. All right. We'll finish up today's podcast. If you are still listening at this point, you are a real one. Thank you so much for joining me on this ride as I just ramble through all the sports it feels like no one cares about here in uh, North America. But we arrive at MTV's The Challenge, which has been running now, I believe, for 36, 37 seasons. Been around a long time. Uh, It's a reality TV show, first and foremost, very similar to survivor in a way and similar to big brother in a way where they live in a house uh people are voted out but instead of just leaving the game you are put into an elimination where it's a 1v1 and then the loser goes home so there's that added bit of like physical competition if you are strong if you are endurant if you are good at puzzles you're going to be very great in this game and you've had there's some incredible physical specimens who have been on this show uh the current one on this season is a division former Division One college football athlete uh, named Fessy, and all my homies hate Fessy. He's been an absolute tool this entire season, uh, as you might expect from a show such as this. Uh, really complained about his partners the whole season because the theme of the season has been double agents. Uh, so you've been ha- you've had a partner the entire season that you have to work with. Uh, he finally wins the elimination which was handed to him on a silver platter he's only had to do two eliminations this season both of them have been the hall brawl event where essentially it's two people at opposite sides of a hallway and you have to run into each other and then whoever gets past and presses the button on the other side first wins what did he play on football uh, i don't know but he is a unit and so the thing is is the the, the theme of the show especially this season is there's no rules. So it feels like the producers are kind of seeing what's happening and then choosing their eliminations based on that. And so there's no one else in this game who could beat him in a hall brawl. And they chose it for that purpose because they want to have him in the final. And he absolutely destroyed the other dude, Kyle, who I've loved. He's just great television. He's a funny dude. Uh, He's British and just like uh, he loves causing drama. Uh, and Fessy just like, if they, I think they had to go best of five. Fessy would have like literally knocked this dude unconscious if they had gone two more times because the first time Kyle ducked in like this and Fessy just <laughs> crushed him. And uh, Kyle broke his finger trying to hold on to him as he knocked him down and then walked over him to go press the button. And Kyle broke his finger and then was declared unfit for the rest of it because it wasn't broken like side to side, it was broken like front way back way so it was literally like perpendicular to the way his bone was going it was a gross injury uh fessy didn't even look like check up on him even though everyone had been pretty tight throughout the season and so yeah all my homies hate fessy but he picks up a partner after winning the elimination you get to choose your new partner if you want uh that is kind of the power that comes with winning an elimination and so i have power ranked my partners heading into the finale uh, these finales are crazy. I don't know if you've ever heard of the show, but it is a two-day finale. So you basically run like 20 miles one day with like puzzles and physical checkpoints set up in between. Then you have to stay out. Like 
you basically go through the night and then there's a second day where you got to do another like 20 mile run or like a 10 mile swim, stuff like that. It's like an incredible competition of endurance. And then they mix in like some physical stuff and some uh, mental stuff along the way as well. And, and you got to work with your partner specifically for this season. And so very excited to see how the final turns out. I think right now the favorites are Cam and Corey, just because Killer Cam is a beast and is far and away the best woman in this competition. And you're only as strong as your weakest link. And it feels like in this situation, uh, the women just are a little bit weaker compared to the men in this final competition. That's not always the case, but especially like Cam is stronger than her partner in, but she's just a, such a high level ahead of all the other women that, that ha you have to place them at the top. Next, I have Casey and Fessy because Casey, again, second most dominant woman in this season. Uh, and Fessy, of course, is just a unit and he's going to perform. He just might not have great chemistry with his partner. And so that's something to look out for. Uh, then you have Nani and Leroy. Uh, these two are probably the most beloved on the, on the show. And uh, Leroy had been in do complete domination in the game for the entire season, but then Fessy wins the elimination and steals his partner. Uh, so those two are going to be solid. I just don't know if Nani has the upside to really win it, but those, that is kind of the people's champions uh, of the season. And then finally you've got CT who is a legend of the game, but he is stuck with Amber B who is a rookie uh, made it to the final because she had to do hall brawl against two stick figures of women. Uh, and the only reason she won is because she played rugby in like high school. And so just had a little bit more grit than the other two, but probably did a hall brawl against two of the weakest competitors in the show. Uh, so, and, and she couldn't even do a. I think it was, so you have to, this, they did like a mini challenge on the second last episode and you had to run five miles and there was a checkpoint with a math problem. And the math problem was like 432 times seven. And then you just have to, and then the answer is the combination lock. And she spent half an hour and didn't get it. Just struggled on the math problem. It was really brutal to watch because it's not even like, you don't even have to do the full math. You could do what's 400, what's four times seven. And then just add the two zeros. And you know, that's the first two digits of the combination lock. And then you could just like spam the rest of the numbers, but she just, she got so deep in her own head and couldn't do the math problem in like half an hour. Uh, and so CT hopefully will provide the brains of the operation. Uh, but Amber B definitely looks to be the weakest competitor going in the final. And again, when it's partners, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So I have to rank them last in my power rankings, but uh, cheering for Nani and Leroy, but expecting Cam and Corey to come out on top. If you have any takeaways from the season, the challenge, feel, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, on Instagram at orobbins9. Um, and I don't even know my own Instagram or Twitter thing because I literally just create it to look at news. But uh, you can also hit up the podcast Sports Next Door uh, Twitter and Instagram if you want to chat about that. Always happy to. Uh, and yeah, looking forward to the finale. Looking forward to a great weekend of sports. A uh, lot of stuff to get through on today's show. So thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for bearing with us. And uh, yeah, appreciate the support. If you're still here at the end, you're a real one. Uh, stay safe. Uh, keep listening. Share us with your friends. And and Max has got a couple stories up on that website. A couple uh, mini blog posts that you should definitely check out. Some good stuff up there. And uh, Max, I will leave it with you uh, for any final thoughts. 
enjoy your favorite TV shows while you can. You know you're going to hate the ending. Sports <laughs> next door, signing out. <laughs>